ladies. Hi. Hi. Can you believe it? Welcome to season four Yay. of CNUSD EdChat. This is episode one. We hope everyone is out there and enjoying a beautiful summer. Yes, even all of our year-round teachers, we are thinking about you. Please enjoy what you can. Kate interviewed the nationally recognized educator and activist, Nicholas Ferroni. If you don't already follow him on Twitter, you should do so immediately. You can find him at Nicholas Ferroni. We were very lucky to have him as a keynote speaker at CNUSD's fourth annual Literacy is Everywhere conference. Ferroni was named Upstander of the Year by the Human Rights Campaign and was noted as one of the most influential educators in America. And he helped found his school's GSA and Feminist Club. It's quite impressive. Wow. Yeah, his mom is very proud. No, really, he told us. He didn't. <laughs> Listen in as this high school history and cultural studies teacher shares how he challenges both adults and students alike to be advocates for education and most importantly, for each other. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today at the CNUSD fourth annual Literacy is Everywhere conference. We are so happy to have you join us. Thank you for having me. I think this is the coolest conference. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I do want to look at one of the breakout sessions before as well. But I'm Nicholas Roney. I'm a history teacher and cultural studies teacher in Union, New Jersey. I teach high school. And it's my 15th year. I'm also an activist for education, obviously educators uh, and student inclusion and student diversity. So I'm basically kind of a jack of all trades, but they all fall in the education to celebrate teachers and to empower students. Now, you're just not an under the radar teacher. You have a large following on Twitter and you've even had some television appearances. So I first uh, saw you on The View. How was it to be on The View? It's, it's, it's nice when teachers are on prime time for something good. Yes. <laughs> it's always nice and it's rare, but it was a very cool experience when, and again, you have people on that platform to kind of give me a platform to share all the work that everyone in education does. So it was really cool. It's every teacher is a celebrity to somebody. Mm -hmm. So it's, it'd be nice if teachers get more of those opportunities. And you brought a student there yes. to join you. And I thought that was really cool as well. I wouldn't be there without that student. Yeah. <laughs> and so on The View, you were talking about social experiments you conduct in your classroom. And you talked a little bit about that today uh, during your keynotes. Can you uh, describe some of these experiments and what what is the purpose? Well, I think it goes back to, as individuals, experience is the best way to learn. I mean, I'm sure our, our parents and, and adult figures told us a lot of stuff, but until we experience it for ourselves, we don't really learn a valuable lesson. And as an educator, I remember being in college and taking a cultural studies course and seeing Jane Elliott's brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment, which I thought was one of the most powerful things done in the 70s to teach kids about injustice and racism. And I, I said, when I become a teacher, I'm going to try to find every way I can to teach them about social issues as well as historical issues by putting them and engaging them in a way that not only lets them learn it, but experience it so they truly understand it. I would say one of the experiments which I was on the view for was my uh, issue with gender inequality, which again, I am a straight white Christian man. I do not understand what it's like to be a woman, a minority, or any in any marginalized group. And so what I wanted to do is try to give guys, six of the nicest football players in our school, an idea of what it was like to be a part of the minority and when the minority is being decided by, by the majority who are deciding things that go against your own interest and to see how they feel in that sense. So we set up an experiment where I had six football players and 16 or 17 girls from the feminist club and they were under the impression they were voting on new school policies. I, however, wrote all the policies to be very anti-boy. 
So I wanted to see how boys would feel when girls are deciding their fate about policies that are anti-boy, which is what women have gone through for the longest time about men deciding the fate of women's health, women's issues, equal pay. And it was one of the most eye-opening experiences ever because they flipped out because it was the most unfair thing. It's a male prison, all their comments. At the same time, that was the response I hoped for and I expected because now they got a taste of what it's like to be a woman in many environments in the workplace, except in elementary school education. That's the one place. Right. Yeah. Um, you also uh, had a social experiment on Twitter where you asked boys, um, have they ever felt uncomfortable by an older woman? And you asked the girls, had they ever felt uncomfortable by an older man? In cultural studies, which is a, a course where you break down everything from gender issues, women's rights throughout history, uh, Latino history, but we also break it down to societal cultural norms. So we do a lot of surveys. For example, we did a survey in reference, reference to female historical figures. We gave them a list of five celebrities, female celebrities, and then gave them a list of five historical females, and we were going to give them 20 bucks if they can name all 10. Of course, mm -hmm. every kid, boy and girl, can name the celebrities, but they didn't know Sandra Day O'Connor, they didn't know Harry Tubman, they didn't know, only to put in perspective on how powerful media celebrates Absolutely. one group and the other group's forgotten. But the survey was very simple in a sense where I had my female students go out and ask a group of boys and male students go out and ask group boys and ask them a very simple question. Have you ever felt uncomfortable by a woman's comments? Mm -hmm. And the majority of boys, and the irony is, do I think boys probably felt uncomfortable by comments? Yes. Mm -hmm. I also feel like we live in a society that conditions boys to say that they should be, they have to hide it or, which again is toxic masculinity, which we discuss in class all the time. And so obviously all the girls were a little more open and said, absolutely. But it just put in perspective on how we're raising certain behavior norms that are not positive or good behavior norms. And we did an experiment too where we asked, you know, have you ever cried over a girl? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. And guys will say no, even though they did. Mm -hmm. Have girls, have you ever cried over a guy? And they'll say yes. How they're more accepting and in tune with their emotions which also leads me to believe why guys deal with aggression issues because we're taught to repress aggression. And there's, it's such a great course because it allows me to see something in news, like, well, let's see what they think. Mm -hmm. And I feel like kids are very honest in a sense, but it also exposes a lot of powerful, powerful overlapping issues that we deal with in society. You know, the whole boys will be boys mentality means that I can do whatever I want and there's no consequence for it. However, I'm gonna hold you to a higher standard because you're a girl, so if you curse, that's the end of the mm -hmm. world. So it teaches, and it's great to engage with teenagers because they're a lot more prophetic and enlightened than people think. We talked about how you have a, you know, a national uh, presence on Twitter, um, probably a global presence, and you recently cultivated the hashtag, hashtag teachers worth. So what is your intention with this hashtag? There's activism and then there's awareness. And I always feel like activism starts with awareness, exposing something, and then from there you then mobilize and, and move forward. Uh, I always try to celebrate and debate the whole issue of teachers' value and teachers' worth and, and what we do, even how many jobs we have. Because the media kind of doesn't really tell the whole story. And I, the one thing I do love about social media is we are now connected to people we've never been connected before. So you're struggling, and the one thing is our struggle is all the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so I basically, just out of curiosity, having a debate with someone in reference to, obviously, teacher pay, where they argue that we're overpaid, we have summers off, and which we won't even get into because that is absolutely absurd. Mm -hmm. But the whole issue of what teachers are paid in different states. Mm -hmm. So uh, it eventually, I mean, ended up trending because of the sheer fact that teachers share how many years they've been teaching, wh where they teach, how many years, their, their academic credentials, and their salary. To kind of show people on a larger level how different 
-hmm. People are paid even based on experience level uh, from state to state, even county to county in some cases. And, it, and I didn't do it to demean or make teachers feel bad who made a lot of money. I did it to make teachers who mm -hmm. weren't getting paid to show that this is how it should be. Mm -hmm. And it just it started a conversation which led into a few interviews and article about we need to have some sort of national standard, which we don't have. And standard of living, I mean, cost of living aside, it doesn't really factor in that much. Mm -hmm. so, Were there any surprising ahas? Well, it's, again, I teach in New Jersey. I do fairly well. But then I'm hearing teachers in Oklahoma and Texas mm -hmm. and Kentucky making fifteen to $30,000 after taxes. And and to me, it's like, that's absolutely insane because then you know, they're obviously doing the same thing we do. They're paying for supplies. Mm -hmm. They're working multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. And even the concept of working multiple jobs. USA Today released a survey saying 20% of teachers work additional jobs, which is false. Because when you look at the data, all they did is basically they focused on different tax filings, mm -hmm. which meant they're teachers who work different jobs outside of teaching. Mm -hmm. One out of every two teachers work additional jobs inside of school, mm -hmm. whether it's tutoring, advisor, every. So 70% of all teachers work additional jobs. But based on that survey, they'll give the impression that's only 20%. So that's why we then did that the teacher side jobs hashtag. So my goal is to start with awareness to start and ruffle feathers and get people realizing this because that way when it comes time to protest, to strike, to, to lobby policy, we have the foundation. I always think most good, good activism starts with awareness and acknowledgement because mm -hmm. you can't go in a direction if you know why you're going in that direction. Yeah, it was eye-opening for me because here in Southern California, I think we do have a higher pay scale um, and yes, there's a higher cost of living. And I was really surprised by how much education and degrees many of the teachers had, but yet their salary. Their doctors make in 30 years making $30,000. I, I, I don't know. have my doctorate and it's like, it's and to me, it's like, that's insane. I don't know how you can survive on no. that. You're a history, um, cultural studies teacher. And if you've paid attention to the news recently or social media, uh, the socio-political climate seems divisive. Mm. Um, so how do you see the importance of civics in the classroom? I think every educator teaches civics in some way as far as making students who are active, who are socially aware. Uh, I think, and again, it was funny because in Arizona, they were trying to pass a bill where you can't talk about controversial political mm -hmm. issues in the classroom, which, uh, and again, my argument would be that's like telling a math teacher not to mm -hmm. use numbers. Right. Yeah, it's, and it's always interesting from a historical standpoint. I always look at history in a very general scope. I could tell you everything that's going on right now, and I could find 30 situations like that in the past. We have had presidents who've been controversial, who have been this and that. Uh, we've had many situations. Everything repeats itself. I also feel like as a history teacher, it's it's disheartening in a sense because you're seeing a social climate that we've only seen one or two times before and they never turned out well. They've turned mm -hmm. out of divisive conflict. Mm -hmm. And it's, as an educator, I feel like the current political climate is the opposite of what we try to do for our kids. We teach them compassion. We teach them independent thought. We don't teach them to follow anyone blindly. We teach them to think for themselves. We teach them to rationalize. We teach them to care about each other. And I hate to say it, and I'm not this, as I'm an independent, I have no political affiliation. My students are better people than the people who are running the country right now. Mm -hmm. And it's scary to say that because I feel like they're role models. And to me, it's not political. It's based on action and behavior. It only applies to politics now. It's like, I, I think sports mentality have applied to politics where it's like, oh, you're a Yankees fan or you're a Boston fan? I hate you. I hope mm -hmm. It's like, we've never had that before. Oh, you're independent. It's like, okay, we can still disagree. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, oh, if you don't believe what I believe, I want you to get injured or I want something to happen to you. To me, it's like we've taken that cult, sport, mm -hmm. fanatic mentality and applied it to politics. When in the fact, I feel like 90% of the country wants the same things. If you want someone to suffer in this country, 
you're not part of any party. You're not a human being. Like most people I feel like are in the medium where we want to see what's best for other people and we care. You know, it's like I always say charity starts at home, but it doesn't have to end there. And I feel like our education policies kind of contradict the current overall landscape of things, which is a good way because my kids give me hope every day. One of the upsides or the upside of the current sociopolitical climate is that students have raised their voice and they are being role models. And I look up to, they've inspired yeah. me again. I would joke around my students that I don't have to teach them the Constitution anymore because now they know about it. Mm -hmm. They're learning about it as we mm -hmm. go. And 2014, my conversations were, Miss Froney, did you see American Idol? Now in 2008, right. Miss Froney, did you see the electoral debate in, in Savannah, Georgia? And, the, and it's... Most of my students didn't know who our senators were in New Jersey. Now they know who's running for governor mm -hmm. in California. So it, it, like you said, the positive is now they're, they're forced to be active. And it's like, again, I wasn't protesting human rights when I was a junior in high school. I was right. worried who I was going to prom with. Yeah. yeah. Let's hope that they can keep up the momentum and help yes. us lead the future. Any tips or suggestions for educators as they approach the sensitive topics that we are facing today on our campuses? No matter what opinion you make, it's going to be considered biased. Mm -hmm. I, get, I get attacked by educators in the South in certain parts of the country mm -hmm. because I'm outspokenly supportive of LGBTQ students. Mm -hmm. And they say I'm allowing my students to be perverted, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. going against Christian faith. I'm, my logic is then you're telling me I should allow my students to consider suicide and mm -hmm. constantly demean them. And to me, it's, it's the great thing about public school in general is it's completely unbiased. Religion doesn't apply, political views don't apply. It's just, it's a narrative. And my advice for educators would be, which is tough, because I have first-year teachers who say, I want to start a GSA, mm -hmm. but my administrator is extremely conservative. And my thing is, that, and I go back to Martha King's quote, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, if, you, if you're silenced, you're siding with the oppressor. And I don't, to me, it's never political. I just want every student to walk in my classroom, regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, sexuality, to feel like they're valued. That I, and I will never let anyone demean any of my students. And that's the thing. It's like I, if I go in class, say the current president attacks transgender people, and I don't, ha and I have transgender students. If I don't defend them, I'm supporting him. And by me going against him, I'm not going against him. I'm going against what he said. Mm -hmm. And if that's how he feels, then he's wrong. In that sense, but then people say I'm being biased and taking my political. When I'm all, all I do is it's for students and teachers, mm -hmm. and I will defend my students. I don't care if I criticize people in power. With so many changes to 21st century education and learning, what advice can you give to teachers or perhaps families in the community to try tomorrow, to try this week, and to try this month? The irony is, all my with the future of education, my my request and my suggestion will always be to go to the past. Uh, with all the technology now, we become a toy for our toys. We lose so many amazing skills. So with kids are going to have access to technology. So as an educator, I then give them the skills that they're losing with technology, meaning social skills, interaction, conflict resolve, patience. We meditate. We, we, they write. They, they do things that normally they wouldn't do in response to technology because to me, it's when you lose those skills, you, you lose humanity. Even, and again, those skills I think are so much more useful. So for tomorrow, I would say use things and, and use practices that were beneficial for us today. Talking with each other, debates, discussions, interactions, uh, things that seem outdated because technology replaced them to me are more necessary now than ever before. This week, I would say don't forget why I became a teacher. 
uh, don't let the one bad moment forget all those little great moments. And I said, there's no such thing as a small moment with the students. Like every moment's a big moment, whether it's a kid smiling for the first time, whether it's a student who I was saying who never talked said two words, whether it's a student sharing something personal with you because that means they trust you. It's with all the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the testing, we kind of lose the heart and core of what we do. And I feel like it's, you could have the worst day in the world, but one of those little moments should be the ones you reflect on the most. And this month? We have to keep fighting. Uh, educators, and the one thing I always feel like people get upset is they feel like we're protesting because we're selfish. And I say, no, no, we're protesting because we've been selfless for too long and we've been taken advantage of. And in the, this is one of the only few protests where it benefits kids and education with the protest. We're still going to do what we love. We're still going to make it work. And I would say, if you want to witness a miracle, just walk into any school and you'll see one. And we somehow make it work with minimal resources. So for this month, I just encourage everyone to either be more, continue to be outspoken, uh, fight for not only teacher uh, concerns, but any paraprofessional, anybody who's in the scope of the education world. And if you're not a teacher, support those teachers who are. Because the irony is our protests are not selfish. Baseball players protest are. We're fighting for education, we're fighting for students. And the better we do, we're going to do great either way, but the better we do, the better we can do for them. Well, thank you, Nicholas Ferroni, for joining us today and flying all the way across the country to be here at our Literacy is Everywhere conference. Oh we God. appreciate it. Well, thank you. Hopefully this is a yearly thing. If, if not speaking next year, I'll come back to attend. Ooh, wonderful. Yeah. We would love to have you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. So many solid takeaways from that conversation. Yes, I love the social experiments that he facilitates for his students. What a great way to get the students emotionally engaged in the content. And I appreciate how he ties everything into current events. I mean, if we don't create a safe space and teach our students how to debate, discuss, and disagree civilly, how will they learn? And I loved his advice for us to go to the past. Yes, technology is here and it can do great things, but it is critical that we give students the skills that they are losing behind those screens, like patience and conflict resolution. All things essential to us as human beings. Mm. And especially, let's not forget why we became teachers in the first place. Right. Let's take the time to witness the miracles taking place on every single school site every day. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you want to catch more of Ferroni's social experiments, check out his series with Soul Pancake, which you can find on YouTube. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Gigi and I'm in seventh grade. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to cnusd.k12.ca.us slash edchat. And be sure to follow them on Twitter and Facebook at CNUSD EdChat to let them know the topics you are interested in. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by leaving a five-star review. We greatly appreciate your support. This episode is written and produced by Jennifer Cordura, Anne-Marie Cortez, Kim Kemmer, and me, Kate Jackson, and edited by Ken Pucci.